Hello, and welcome to the Thomas Life and Coffee podcast. I am your host, Thomas Shillowise, and today we have an amazing story coming your way, Shannon Doa Sheffalo, and she has quite a bio, and I just highlighted some points out of it, but there is so much more to Shannon Doa. She's a graduate of Michigan State University, Core Essentials graduate from Coach U, member of Foster Leaders Movement sought after speaker on foster care and social and the science of impact and trauma and resilience on various social issues, trainer and consultant, public, private, government, 20 years in the law offices is kind of where it all started. She's an author, but more importantly, she's a foster alum. And so that's where our connection is, because as you know, I am a foster alum as well. And to be honest, when you refer to us as foster alum, I was thinking about that later and I was like, why is that not settling with me? I can say that because it is, it has helped me be who I am today and have this podcast. So thank you so much, Shenandoah, for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for the listeners for tuning in. Can, can we just talk about the foster alum thing for a Yes, second? let's do it. So I, I think it's interesting because there's a big conversation in the community of, of what do you call people who've been in the system, aged out of the system, been touched by the system. And and I don't always love alumni because sometimes I think it's like, it, it seems like we're proud of being it or like, you know, cause I'm, I'm proud to be a Spartan, right? I, I graduated from college, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my time that I spent there, even some of the bad times I spent there. But I, I don't know how proud I am of being an alum, but I don't know what we call ourselves because I like survivors, I, I sometimes feel like it's my prison time, but I don't know what inmates after coming out of prison call them, you know, like, right. Like, I don't know what we refer to ourselves as. So I've, I've sort of settled on alumni, even though I don't really love it. Right. I, I agree. And even to a certain point, a survivor, you know, I've been called survivor too. And I'm like, yeah. But that's, but I look at survivor as like, that's like, that's a place in your life. Like you are, you're surviving. I don't think that's where we're supposed to stay. Even though years later, I would say a lot of foster children, especially my siblings are still trying to survive. Absolutely. I, I feel like I've finally got past that or another way to look at that. And it served me a long time. And I know it serves a lot of foster children is being the victim. Yeah. Continuing to be the victim for years and realizing that my life is actually a story of victory and not no longer the victim. Like that was a huge transition for me. So the same thing with alumni and survivor, like those two things that I didn't realize the alumni would be, but like the survivor, when people call me a survivor, I'm like, well, I was a survivor. Now I'm, you know, want to be in a life of thriving, moving forward, you know, being a change in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes alumni fits, right? Because it's like we've graduated that that piece of the story, maybe, right? So it's like right. you graduate from college, you graduate from high school. We've sort of graduated that. It's a piece of who we are forever, though, right? Right. Like, yeah. I wonder if they mail you a certificate for graduating. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> you think it should come with a big check. For... <laughs> right. right. Wait, where's my... Where's our checks, Thomas? That's right. what we're missing. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I, you know, I I say maybe not a check, but could someone pick up the therapy bill for the rest of my life? That's right. That's right. It's, Isn't that it's expensive? Truth? It's expensive to be a foster care alum. That it is true. It's true. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. So, well, thanks for having me on. I, I'm super excited to talk to you today and just see where our conversation goes. We had right. such an interesting conversation last time we were together that I think there's so many pockets we could dive into. I think we have more similarities than maybe either of us realize on right. the surface level. And I say this to a lot of other alums as well, is once you start digging in, it's like, oh yeah, that's like my brother from another mother over there. Right. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, I could just see so many conversations coming. So, but today we want to specifically tell your story and get into just, you know, where it started to where you are today. And obviously this could be conversation for hours but we'll just get going yeah I'll maybe I'll just highlight it right so I mean my first name is Shenandoah so that's usually pretty intriguing for any event I show up to (laughs) right because people want to know a little bit about that and so 
I always sort of joke and say that just tells you that I was born in California in the 70s. Like that's a really good way to know that I'm a true Californian is that my name is Shenandoah and you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So that all fits together. I wanted to be Jennifer my entire life because it would have just been a lot easier. And sort of as I've grown older, I've grown into the name, but I loathed it as a kid and and it was hard. It was, it was, (laughs) it, it was tough growing up for me. There were not a lot of people with unique names when I was growing Growing up, I, tons of kids with unique names now. I wish they had been in my classes when I was a kid. It would have made things a little easier. But that was like one of the reasons that I started standing out pretty early is I had this unique name. My mom suffered from multiple mental illnesses. She had multiple diagnoses and she had multiple addictions because of a untreated mental illness. And so my childhood was very nomadic. So I was born in Southern California. We lived all over Southern California, but we also lived in in Arizona and Nevada and Utah and Colorado and sort of, I always refer to it as this reverse Oregon Trail. Hmm. Uh, For those other Gen Xers who remember playing Oregon Trail, I always say I was getting dysentery in reverse because (laughs) it it was just a tough life. And, you know, I was thinking about this interview this morning and, and thinking about the movie that just won the best Academy Award, Nomadland. So many parallels for that movie in my life, although it's really focused on people of the retirement age, traveling around, I really saw a lot of my mom and a lot of those characters, my biological mom. My biological mom wasn't smart enough to get a camper. That might have made her life a little bit easier. We didn't have the camper, but we surely had that nomadic existence really the inability to develop relationships from a really early age. And so I tell people that when you're born into that situation, you know, when you're born into a life of a mom who's suffering from addiction and who is a manic depressive and bipolar, it's really a fun adventure. Now there's a lot of turmoil, but, but as a young child, that's all, you know, Right. right? So, right. so you just accept that everyone is living this way because you don't know that people aren't living this way. You know, I, I thought lots of moms didn't wake up for days on end and, and most kids fed themselves and got themselves to school and, and did the things they were supposed to do. You just don't know it works in a different way. And when I started realizing it worked in a different way was through television, you know, and so I would see all these really perfect families on TV and, you know, I grew up in the era of the Cosby show, right? So we can right. Cosby. I talk about, I mean, Bill Cosby was sort of the, the foundation of my childhood from picture pages, like on Captain Kangaroo through the Cosby show, right? Like I felt like Bill Cosby was the greatest dad ever. So right. that's how I then began realizing, wait, people might live in different ways and that doesn't reflect the way I'm living. We don't eat meals together. We don't do these things. That that wasn't what was happening. Nobody was asking about homework at home. And instead, we lived this really nomadic life. So for me, between the ages of zero and 13, I attended over 35 schools and we moved over 50 mm. times. Oh my you know, there would be schools that my mom would register me for on Friday. And by Monday, we would have moved. Like, that, that was our life. You mm. never knew. I was in constant fear of coming home from school and having my mom just have disappeared, forgetting me. I thought that often I would have nightmares about that. Uh, as I got older to 10, 11, and 12, and I started watching, you know, throwback shows like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and and Oprah Winfrey's <laughs> you know, first talk show before, right. she, before she got all social justice right on mm-hmm. us and, and cared about wellness. Like I really thought I was going to get kidnapped or that my parents would disappear and I wouldn't be there. And because my mom had addictions, there were always shady characters around. You know, my mom had been uh, involved uh, with motorcycle gangs and, and all sorts of, of the underbelly of communities for a long time. And so I, I was sort of just accustomed to bad things happening. Right. I, I watched my mom be brutally beaten and raped. I, I've been on the receiving end of physical and emotional and sexual abuse. And so you just think that this is normal and this is what you deserve, right? Like there isn't, you, you don't have the ability to know that life can be different than that. And right. so I just assumed and sort of had accepted that that was my lot in life. 
with this constant moving, never really having friends or, or feeling truly connected to people. What I learned was to become really good at running in the middle. I think I was fortunate that I didn't have a learning disability. I, I struggled in lots of other ways, but school could become an escape for me. And what I learned was not to get A's and not to get D's. Okay. <laughs> and and I, I learned that pretty quickly as a young kid, because when you excelled, people wanted to meet your parents and know what was going on. And when you did really, really bad, people wanted to meet your parents and know what was going on. But if you could sort of run in the BC crowd, you could really blend in and sort of skate through in the public school system. Right. And I became really attuned to that. And so I... I became really good at being a BC student. I mean, I remember looking at tests and being like, just don't answer half of these and you'll get a B in the class. And so that's what I would do, right? Just to, to minimize anyone seeing or noticing me because I didn't want anyone to question what was going on. So, you know, we had been groomed to lie about what was happening in our household we had been groomed to lie when the police knocked on our door and asked us what our names were. You know, we knew to give false information. And we thought that that was the right thing to do. Mm. Right? Like, right. We didn't know any better. And so when you're sort of born into that, it's, it's hard to let some of those pieces go. And then when I was 13, we sort of had moved and traveled and made our way back to Michigan, which was my mom's home state. She wanted to be closer to family. And I was the summer between, between turning 12 and 13 back to California to actually stay with an aunt for the summer, which I did. And then when I came back to Michigan, nobody picked me up at the airport. Oh. And so, you know, that was pre 9-11. And I basically convinced the flight attendant to let me get on a public bus and go to my grandmother's house. Oh my gosh. Which she let me do, right? And and I'll tell you, I, I say this to, to audiences and groups a lot, like there's a piece of me that hopes nobody would allow that now. And because I travel so much for work, I totally know it happens. Right? <laughs> so like there's these ways in which kids just really slip through systems. And I think I slipped through the system primarily because I was white. You know, we didn't have a lot of child welfare involvement up until the age of 13, because I think people looked the other way. You know, I'd been pushed out of moving vehicles in front of people. And then, you know, literally someone came to get me and pulled me by my hair back into the car they had just pushed me out of. And the police were never called or notified. Like, I think if I was a black or brown person, that wouldn't be the case. And I can see that very clearly in my life. Like, as just a complete lookout, I can see how the color of my skin prevented services and, and, and skirted us in the system at all, right? So I spent those 13 years skirting the system. Uh, we would of course leave in the middle of the night anyway. So th that was very common, packing up in the middle of the night, being awoken at three or four in the morning, leaving everything you own behind, getting in a car and, and just going. It was very, very common in my childhood. And so we did that. And so I, when I returned, I got on the city bus to my grandmother's house, who at the time was living in a senior living community. She was the only person where I knew she lived at the time. And, and I just showed up at her house. She let me in. And then eventually my mom just didn't show. So, you know, a, a day turned into a week, turned into a month. And the folks at the senior living community were concerned that I was becoming a resident. Yeah. You know, a 13 year old girl with significant childhood trauma. <laughs> just blends perfectly into a senior living community, not causing any issues at all, of course. And so they were threatening to evict my grandmother. Mm. And so I actually was forced at 13 to make a decision. Do I become homeless with my grandmother and try to take care of my grandmother? Or do I report myself to care? And it was not an easy decision for me. I didn't trust the police. I can't say I fully trust the police now. You know, I've always... Right. <laughs> I just lived in neighborhoods where that wasn't a trustworthy call. Like people just did not call 911 because even more bad things happened when you did, right? It was just easier to, to deal with it on your own oftentimes. And so the idea of calling the police was not easy for me. And really hearkening back to, to thinking 
about orphans, I knew two basically. One was Annie from right, who got right. who got Daddy Warbucks. Right. 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 The, the orphan who gets Daddy Warbucks. And so that was like this really amazing happily ever after. And two was Punky Brewster, mm. who also got this happily ever after of this like really old guy who just wanted to help, right? So right. nothing like a little white savior in all of us. So so that's what I I thought this might be really good. Like I could like actually go to a school for a full year. I had never at that point attended a school for a year straight and thought this could be really good for me. These are like parents that are handpicked from the state. They must be really amazing people if the state thought that they could be parents. Like, could you imagine how amazing they must be? Because the state said you would make a great parent. And so I thought, it could really be my happily ever after. And so I called the authorities. And in my mind, prior to them getting there, I had convinced myself I would tell them as little information as possible. Because, right, also being a narc and a snitch isn't a good thing in my communities. And so right. I was worried about that. I was worried about the impact it would have for my mother. And so I said very little. We did a 20-minute interview in my grandmother's living room with a police officer and social worker and basically said, yeah, I know my mom has a drug addiction issue and I haven't seen her in, in a month. That was enough for them to start a case and an investigation. I only saw my mom one time after that event. She never showed for any court dates. In the car, in the social worker's car, on my way to her office, I remember thinking, this was a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. I'll have that thought three other times in my life. <laughs> that, that same panic of this isn't the right thing to do. It, and that started my journey in foster care. I, I spent time in group homes. I was in a kinship placement. I was in numerous foster homes, none of which were good situations. I was arrested on my first day in foster care because I had a complete and utter mental breakdown of which, you know, nobody had the skills to deal with. Nobody knew what was, it, it was such an overwhelming experience for me. And, you know, now at 46, I understand what was happening. <laughs> at 13, I didn't understand what was happening in that brain and body. And so I spent from 13 to 18 in care, going to court every 90 days for my review sessions. I right. sat on a bench for no one asking me what I needed, if I had the things I needed. And a lot of, right, what the world deemed really smart people making decisions about me that affected me that I had no input or control in and not getting the basic things that I needed. So, you know, a, a, as a young woman in care, you know, I went into care at 13, I aged out at 18, and I was wearing the same underwear that entire time, right? Like okay. basic needs were not being met, let alone talking about, the healing of the trauma that I had endured for 13 years and the trauma that continued for the next five years in care, right? So like it ended up being just adding to the trauma versus relieving some of the pressure. And so it didn't stop. You know, I say beforehand that I, I was the victim of abuse and neglect in all different forms and shapes. And I entered the system and was the victim of abuse and neglect in all different shapes, right? Like nothing changed for me except for the perpetrators. Right. That, that's what changed for me. It was, it was new perpetrators and, and nothing else changed. And so for me, I, I ended up having a December birthday. So that meant like when I started school in kindergarten, I missed the cutoff. We used to have this December 1st cutoff. You know, you had to be, you had to be five by a certain date before you could start kindergarten. And I missed that cutoff. So I've always been the oldest kid in my class, right? Because I right. started school basically a year later than everybody else. And what that translated to as an 18 year old was I turned 18 halfway through my senior year, which meant I probably wasn't going to graduate from high school, you know, where I lived in the system. And even now in many systems, when you turn 18, see you later, right. <laughs> like, like you're done and figure it out. And I was in a care home in a really rural location. There wasn't housing, there wasn't transportation. And I was desperately trying to get my high school diploma. Because I, I didn't know any adults with a high school diploma, including most of my foster parents. And so I just thought if I could get a high school diploma, that's, that's my golden ticket, really. And that was looking doubtful, real doubtful. 
I was struggling to figure out how to do it. You know, the one thing about Thomas, I think you'll agree, being, being a foster kid is you become a real shrewd negotiator. Right. And and I hear this in different, some people say we're great manipulators, right? Like I, I hear it in both positive and negative contexts. But for those of us who survived it, I know it's, we know how to get the things we need to survive. We're, we're real adept at figuring out something and coming up with some ludicrous plans at times to keep ourselves going forward. And so I was coming home from work. I, you know, I've been working since I was 14 years old because I had to pay for things like feminine hygiene products and toothpaste and deodorant. Those weren't provided to me. So I needed a job to even get those basic essentials. And I, I was coming home from work and thought, you know, could I convince my foster parents to let me stay five months? Because that's what I would have been short for a high school diploma. Could, could I convince them if I paid them what they've been receiving from the state? Because what I had finally learned by the age of 18 is, hey, these people are getting money for me, <laughs> right? That wasn't really clear to me in the beginning, right? but it became really clear to me towards the end because that amount of money is much cheaper than a car an insurance an apartment, right? And trying to figure out how to make this five months work in my, by the way, $3 and 25 cents an hour high school job, minimum wage isn't cutting it. Right. Like I can't pay for an apartment on $3 and 25 cents an hour. And so I went to my foster parents and asked them if I could stay to get my high school diploma, if I paid them what they had been receiving from the state. So if I gave them five more payments, would it work? And they agreed if I gave them a raise, like oh, should no. negotiators, right? So I agreed to the raise. It actually put me short each month. So I was working almost full time trying to finish up my high school diploma with the idea that that was it. Like that was my big idea. All I was trying to do was get the diploma. And then I thought, you know, maybe I can convince I was working at a hardware store, the people at this hardware store uh, to get me more hours. I could get an apartment close to work that I could walk to, right? Like this is, that that was like the big dream. <laughs> like it didn't go any further than that. And so I was able to graduate from high school because they uh, agreed to those terms. That's how I sort of avoided my, my first bout of homelessness. It didn't last long. <laughs> I just was listening to Tiffany Haddish talk about living in her geo metro. And I was like Ford Escort, but I guess the same, same idea, right? Like I was, yeah, yeah. I remember my days in my red Ford Escort that didn't have tags and I was constantly getting tickets because I didn't have tags at my car. That was my home, but that was cheaper than rent. Right? Right. <laughs> paying your ticket is cheaper than paying rent. So it's, it's working out for me. Yeah. And, and I had a teacher who was really interested in me in high school and thought I should go to college. I thought she was mentally insane that someone like me should go to college. That seemed unheard of to me. Uh, people like me didn't go to college. And my high school counselor told me that people like me don't go to college, right? Like literally told me to my face, people like you learn to serve people like me. Oh, and yeah. Which wasn't hard to hear at that age. Right. It was like I had accepted because all the adults in my life were waiting for me to turn into my mother. And, and Thomas, I'm sure that you've heard this, right? Like you're going to turn into your father. You're going to turn into your mother. Like we think all kids are going to turn into their parents, right? So I was just sort of waiting to turn into my mother who had mental health disorders and addiction. It's like, ooh, sign me up for that line, right? If we're handing mm. out how to live our life, no one's, no one's getting in that line. So I was really just waiting for that life that had been dictated to me. And all the adults in my life, none of who I think had the courage to really say it to my face, but had all alluded, like, I would be fortunate enough to have a job, right? And and the fact that I was 18 and not pregnant was some sort of miracle, right? Like, like we don't know how babies happen. And so it's just some sort of miracle that this girl has made it this far. And so when that guidance counselor said, you know, people like you don't go to college, I was like, I totally agree. Can you like go tell my teacher so she'll get off my back? You know, I didn't take it as harsh as it was at the time because everyone told me I was going to be a loser. Right. And, but and, and so I accepted that. The, the three things you've said so far that has really resonated with me specifically, and I'm sure some listeners that are going to listen to this. Number one is, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that you had an issue trusting the police because I struggled with that for years. And I still struggle with yeah, it. Yeah, no, I still do too. But it's hard. Panic. If a cop pulls behind me, I will still panic. I, I still panic. 
And if I see one, like it is it yeah. nothing to do with me. I, there's something in me that immediately just, you know, just panics. There's a reason I chose criminal defense work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Trust issues. I got trust issues that run deep. Yeah. So it, I, I don't, thing. I think people that didn't grow up in the, the situations that we did, like that's, they obviously view the police a little different and, and it's not wrong, but it's for us because of it's tied to our trauma, tied to what we've gone through, our response is completely different. And that doesn't mean that they did anything that the one we're looking at right that moment that did anything wrong. It's just, it's that. Yeah. So even today, I still, to a certain degree, I panic when I see somebody in uniform, police officer, you know, law, you know, whatever it, I struggle with that. And then the second thing you said was every 90 days going to court to have somebody make decisions for you that you had, you had no idea what was going to be decided, what was being decided. And I remember that. And I, I know as an adult, especially as a young adult, you know, I had somebody say to me one time, Thomas, you're your own worst enemy. Like you, you keep making decisions and I'm going, and I, and I wanted to explain if that person wasn't so angry with me at the time, and there could have been a civil conversation, which wasn't happening at that moment. Yeah. And I'm like, do you not understand for 15 years, people like you made decisions for me that I had no idea what was being decided, how it was being decided. I just had to, you came or to me. And said, yeah, this is what's going to happen and you're going to do it. And I'm like, but I n had no say. And by the way, like, oh, you're not going back to that foster home tonight. I'm here to take you to a new place. Yeah. And, and so then. Like, Wait, what? What happened? I, I thought everything was fine, right? And I say this quite frequently about those 90 days. It's like, you know, you go every 90 days and people in their mind are like, okay, that's every three months. What's the big deal? It's four times a year, you know, mm -hmm. like, and it's like, yeah, but what would happen for me is like, I know the court date was coming up. Up, right and then I'd have all this anxiety about the court date because it'd be like for me is my mom gonna show up or not right because if my mom shows up like there's a piece of me who like every kid right you want your mom to show up for you like I still have that at 46 years old I haven't seen my mom since I was 13 but I still have that right and if my mom shows up do I still have the courage to stand up to her, right? Because I sort of took a stand when I went into foster care. Do, can I keep doing that? Or am I going to get drawn back into my mom's life? And secondly, if she doesn't show up, what does that say about me? Because now my mom doesn't care about me at all, right? So leading up to my the court hearing, I would have all of this. Then it's the panic of, will she show or won't she show? And either decision is a horrible one for me, right? Like no matter what she does, it's negatively impacting me. And then of course that would happen. And then there's all the outcomes of what happens in the court case, right? So, you know, you got to see your stupid attorney who doesn't say anything to you. I mean, I think my, I had, I talk about this in the book and an attorney who never spoke to me made all these really horrible decisions. And then, you know, as life turns out, Thomas, I get to work in the law as an right. adult. And that attorney crosses my path and I get to, from afar, make his life incredibly difficult. <laughs> and he has no idea why and it becomes this really self-satisfying thing of like there like I'm finally teaching you a lesson like you got to learn how to treat people because you never know where they're going to show up in your life again right right but that panic of then being at the court and then trying to go back to like your friend group at school and explain well where have you been and pretend like none of this has happened to you right and, and that's like the split personality of you and you're now like just trying to act like life's great and contend with all that cortisol and stress and anxiety you just had that you're coming down off of, right? So you go mm. into a deep depression afterwards. And so then that lasts for several weeks. And then guess what? The new case is on the, the new dates on the calendar and you're getting yourself revved up into the anxiety of it. I mean, that was also for me, the torture of court was the before and after it, as well as the living through it in the moment. Right. But in the course, the third thing you said, I wanted to mention real quick was that conversation. Now I was, I was lucky enough that my, my birthday was in July. So even though I was turning 18, my senior year, it was going to be after I graduated. And I remember two conversations distinctly, one with the agency and then one with my father, my foster dad at the time in the first, the first conversation was, you know, Thomas, you're going to graduate which means you're going to age out. You know, we, we wish you luck. Chances are you're going to be in prison on drugs, alcohol, you know, but good luck to you. We hope you, 
congratulations and i'm like whoa yeah we're we're gonna we're gonna be awesome right scared to death yeah and when i got home and i had so there were four of us in the home and three of them had been removed or left for one reason or another so i was the only one left and i could just tell my parents whether they you know, whatever admitted or not, but they were like, we're so ready for this to be done. Like we're so yeah. ready. Right. And my dad walked up to me one day while I was up by the car, my car. And he said, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you ever get in, uh, if I ever get in trouble, I, I won't call you. And if you ever get in trouble, don't call me deal. And he turned and walked off. And I sat there and thought, wait a minute, that's not a deal. Like I didn't agree to that. And, you know, you just yeah. basically told me what was going to happen and you walked away and you know the, the the reality is he's he's been he's been true to his word because yeah. it's been a couple a hand, shoot handful of times I've been in trouble with one thing or another right and yeah. reached out to him and it was no now with his foster with his biological kids in a heartbeat but with the foster children it was nope you're on and your isn't own. it interesting like you know Thomas at least we didn't have to grow up with social media I say this all <laughs> the time because I I think this has added a whole new complexity for kids and caring but I, I'm watching this meme go around right now and Mother's Day is coming up as well which is always like another just sore spot right like shout out for all the great moms and then there's like this whole collective of us that are just like yeah we got nothing for you but I saw this meme recently where it said what's this idea of parenting that like you got your kids to 18 and you're done you're and people saying this is a lifetime commitment and, and that's the thing that I think I struggle in explaining to people all the time is that we talk about like, oh yeah, aging out, that must be so hard. It's like, I'm aging out. It's a lifelong aging out. You know, right. it wasn't just when I turned 18. There, there was a catastrophe that happened when I turned 18. There's no doubt. But, you know, I didn't have anyone to call when I got engaged or got my first job or got a promotion. Like even the happy things in my life there was no one to share that with, you know, I mean, I married a guy from a really big Italian family, right? Like nobody, I'm like one person from my side, like a friend came, right? Versus like the 600 people that came on my husband's side of the family, right? Like people don't want to talk about the pain of that. And like the birth of my daughter, like no one being there, being a new mom, being utterly unprepared and like, you know, you're supposed to learn how to parent from your parents. Yeah, well, I didn't really have the, you know, and I know I didn't have the right parents. So what am I supposed to do? Why is someone giving me this baby? I shouldn't be having a baby, right? right? Even as a full grown adult who had a job and who by outside appearances looked successful, I was a mess. I had no therapy. I had nothing and was sort of figuring it out. I mean, YouTube could have really been helpful in many <laughs> parts of my life, you know? So I just don't think people want to talk about that, right? They they talk about that pain at 18, but, but it's a lifelong pain of not, like having a hard time being quarantined over COVID. Like, listen, I don't get to Zoom with my family. Like, that's not a thing. I hear people talking about how they miss being with their family. And I'm just thinking through COVID, well, welcome to the world of a lot of us. Right. We don't have safety nets. We don't like, you know, I watched friends after college go back and live with their parents to save money. And it was like, I lived in my car. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't have that place to go when, when the dorms closed down, I was homeless. I lived on the streets until the dorms opened back up. Like I didn't have those kinds of things. And I think that's hard for people to wrap their minds around when we talk about, when you tell people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, it's like, that assumes you have bootstraps. Right. You know, and, and I'm not trying to be a victim. I'm just trying to get on some footing. Right. And when I talk about trying to come out of poverty, I recently read a study where they said it would take three and a half years. If if you gave a person just a a living wage, but they had been in poverty, it would take them three and a half years of having nothing go wrong to really get out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by nothing go wrong, they mean you can't have a flat tire. (laughs) You can't, you can't get sick because you can't miss a job. Like three and a half years of nothing going wrong to pull yourself out of poverty. And I, I just think people can't understand that, you know, well, why can't you go live with your parents? Why can't you just, you know, cut back on your, cut back on your spending? It's like, I I starved. I like, when we talk about spending, like I'm not eating, 
right. you know, to get through, to make ends meet, living in a car, working a full-time job, going to school, and I'm still not making ends meet. And I think that's a really hard thing for the average person to, to really sit in those shoes and understand that this isn't, I just make bad decisions. And I, and you're, you're so right on that. I, even today, you know, cause I know this is it's a lifelong process of healing. It's, it's like, once you find the one level, you're still now you've, you're working to the next level. And it's something that I, I want to do. I'm going to continually being in the process of, of moving forward and thriving, but also know that's, that requires different levels of healing. But when I, when I say something to somebody, I know I'm saying it from as a foster child, as somebody with the, the level of trauma that I had, and I'm saying it to the average person who's like, oh yeah, well, I, I struggled with the same thing during COVID. And I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. But it's nice that you're trying to normalize it for me. Yeah. But, but no, you didn't because you have a mom and you have a dad and you still talk to your siblings. I have none of that. My mom yeah. is my, my wife's mom. That's who I call mom because that's, who's been yeah. my mom for almost three years now. But until then it was like, who, anyway, my point is I totally agree with you about the, the average person trying to connect with them, especially is it's hard coming from where we're yeah and, and, and we're having these conversations on a national level right and and for me this all stems back to trauma and so if we're not willing to really have the conversation then we're not having the conversation right so whether right. we're talking about what should minimum wage be or police brutality like all of these things really stem to understanding what's happening with traumatized people right. in, in both aspects right so it, it, it there's trauma all around you didn't have to be in foster care to have trauma that's, That's right. To me. But we just aren't willing to talk about the long lasting impacts of it and our inability, in my opinion, as a nation to have that conversation. We distract ourselves with lots of other conversations, right. but really the root cause is trauma playing out. And we see behaviors that we don't like, right? Whether we call them the Karens that we see in all these videos that are going on, right? That's we can focus on the behavior and we can all agree that it's abhorrent behavior and we're appalled by it. But if we don't start asking ourselves, what's happened? What's causing this? What's the trauma there, right? Because I see horrible behavior from kids in the system who age out of the system for myself, right? I still have poor behavior sometimes. <laughs> and if we focus on the behaviors, we miss the real question. And the real question is, what happened to you? Right. And right. how can I empower you to heal? Because that's the other thing. I can't make you heal, Thomas. You can't make me heal. You can't love people into healing right? I say this all the time. You could have the world's best foster parents. I don't think you or I had those, but, yeah. but I know some survivors who talk about my foster parents were good. Okay. But they can't love you out of your trauma. Right. You're absolutely right. Right. And so I they could have provided you with a roof, given you all that nurturing that you needed, and maybe they didn't make it worse, but their love alone will not heal the stuff that has happened to you. And until we're really going to have honest conversations about the long-term effects of abuse and neglect, we're not going to get very far in this country because it puts us in that survival brain and we unconsciously are there. We don't realize we're in survival mode. We don't realize we're in fight, flight, freeze, right? We're yelling and screaming, but we think it's because we're right. Really, we're just trying to survive and protect ourselves. And then we focus on the behavior and try to get transformation from a behavior when really our survival mechanism is saying, this is what I have to do to survive. That's right. So if you've ever dealt with a kid, I know you've been this kid, Thomas, I've been this kid where we've done some appalling behavior that has upset a bunch of people. And they say, why did you do that? Why did you make that choice? And we sit in the chair and go, I don't know. Right. And then they're even more mad, right? That just escalates the situation when we say, I don't know. But the truth is, we don't know why we did it because we're young children. And what our brain told us was, this is how you can survive this situation. Right. And no adult around us was in their executive functioning. They were in their own survival brain and now want to punish and retribute that behavior to somehow get us out of it. And we can't. 
what gets us out of it is really loving, caring, long-lasting relationships. And what most people say is that's appalling behavior. Go somewhere else, mm -hmm. which then again breaks the bond. Right. <laughs> and off we go and realize, okay, I can only count on myself. And what my brain says is in this situation, have this bad behavior. It, and, and as you're saying that, I am just like all of these memories rushing back. Ex exactly what you're saying. You know, I remember one time, multiple times, actually, my parents saying, why did you do that? And I like literally cannot know. I, I don't know why I did it. I just said, I don't know. And my mom multiple times would throw her hands up. I give up. I give up and walk off. And then my dad had the same response, except he just did it differently. He just turned and walked away. Like you're grounded for a month and walk away. Right. Right? And that was his way of saying, I give up too. And then watching my dad actually lower down to our level of reaction. Like I had never heard him say any foul language before until I was like 17 years old or 16, 17. My little brother was cussing all the time and he started doing it just to write back, right? And I was just appalled. Like you somehow lowered your standards to us or to my brother. And like, you're talking to him the same way he's talking to you. Like somehow this you know, 50 something, 60 year old man should not be talking to my little brother like this, but you've done that and you've done it by choice. Like how, what are we doing here? So that's what, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, to have a, a long career to understand the neurobiology of trauma and what's happening in our brains to now as this adult see what was happening in, in that child's brain. And, and so that's what I know, right? We go to survival, fight, flight, freeze, appease mode. That's unconscious. We don't know we're doing it. And then that's why when someone says, why'd you make that choice? We go, I don't know. I mean, you could ask a kid, like probably parents right now who are picking their kids up from school, right? And you say, hey, sweetie, how did school go? And your kid goes, I don't know. <laughs> right. right? Like ask a new question, ask it in a new way. Like you'll get a different response, right? We just fall into this little game that we play. And so what I realize is, is that, so we'll do an action from survival mode. And what it does is it triggers then adults mostly around us, whether it's social workers or foster parents or even our really lovely parents to go into their trauma brain, right? Mm -hmm. they, they go into survival because they go immediately to rage or anger, whatever their thing is, instead of seeing an executive functioning. And so I say, this is, is the bear chasing you, right? Survival brain is when that bear is chasing you, you're not thinking about the consequences of whatever it is you're doing in the moment, right? When that bear's chasing you down the trail, you're not thinking about, gee, I should really have healthier meals. Gee, I wonder if my homework's due. Uh, gee, what's my five-year plan, right? When you're in survival brain, you're thinking, how the hell do I get out of here without this bear killing me? Right. And you'll do anything. You'll do the craziest things, right? If you've ever watched any survival show on Discovery, you see the crazy things people come up with. That's called survival. So if you then try to put executive functioning to those actions, it's not going to work. The question is, is when someone's in survival mode, how do you pull them into executive functioning? That can work if you're a traumatized kid responding in survival and the adults around you are not being triggered to their survival mode. Mm -hmm. can, can they then surround you and empower and say, Thomas, I think you did this because how could we make new choices in the future? Right? right? But we're so focused on Thomas, why did you lie to me? Thomas, why did you raise your voice? Thomas, why did you throw, right? Whatever the behavior we don't like is, we're so focused on that and then grounding you for a month to give you a punishment that we never solve why you did it in the first place. Right. And so then what does Thomas learn? Okay, well, I get grounded for a month. Didn't really want to go to school anyway, right? That was my favorite at school. Like, oh, you're getting kicked out of school. Oh, darn. I really don't want to be here anyway, right? right? Like you're just reinforcing my bad behavior. Cause again, what I want is connection. So all behavior is I'm trying to connect to you, even when it comes out in really bad ways. And if you're severing every attempt for me to connect with you, then that's just telling me I can't connect with people and I can't be attached to others. Right. Right. And that's what we have is a society of people walking around who can't be attached to others. 
because of their trauma right. and they don't have social skills and they don't have emotional intelligence, right? These are all the things that we're seeing play out on big national levels, by the way, including a past president of the United States, right? Like we're not attached to anything. We, yes. we can't attach to people. We don't have emotions. We don't have, right, emotional intelligence. And, and being forced to grow up really fast and developing things that we're not even really sure how to really understand or handle, but knows, know that it served us. And so we're called more mature, you know, the most mature person that I know. You're so, you're with, you're wise beyond your years. And I know when I've been told that, I think, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to. Yeah, I'm in pain. I've suffered more pain beyond my years. Yes. That's what I try to remind people. No, there's, there's a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And, you know, I'm afraid to, to learn a lesson. Like Mm. I, I'm afraid to make a mistake because it's three times as hard for me to recover. Right. right? So I, it's hard, you know, I, it's hard for me to have long-term relationships. And I say that having been married 24 years, that, that seems to be an abnormally in my life, not a, not a consistent. So even though I've been married that long, when I look at my friend community, it's hard because when I feel like somebody has wronged me, it is hard for me to get over it. I agree with that. Even over the minor, a minor infraction for me cannot be overlooked, right? Like it's hard. It's hard to be my friend. I'm hard to be friends with. I fully admit it. I see it, but I don't know if I can fix it because it's such a part of me and I've been harmed so much in relationships. I have such deep abandonment issues that I see it playing out in all kinds of ways. You know, when someone says they're going to call and they don't, or I'll send you an email or I'll do this thing, like this could be really painful for me if that isn't followed through on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people get busy and aren't doing it intentionally. And it's <laughs> right. Like they also have lives in which things happen, but that's hard for me. Right. It's hard for me if I feel like I'm left out of a conversation. I don't like that. Right. Because so many conversations I was left out of that directly pertain to me that people were talking about me. So I, it always feels like, wait, what are you guys saying? If I'm not, why can't I be part of it? Right? Like, right. It takes a lot. And I have to be like, okay, that's not rational. Like I have to talk myself through these things that have long, deep roots. And then that's not getting into my food issues, my control issues, right? Like I have all of these things that stem specifically from trauma body issues. I mean, I never feeling like I'm good enough. Imposter syndrome. Like, right. The list is the on. list is long. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then I get the people who say, well, so tell us how you became successful. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I am. Why are you asking me this? Because I'm not like, I'm struggling every day. Like every day I get up thinking, right. I see the sign behind you, Thomas. It's like hope, courage, and strength. It's like, no doubt. Yes. Every day, every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if we throw something else on the pile of that, all of those things that are happening, I think that one of the other things I've struggled with, even on like the smallest level, like a five second decision, I have problems with people making decisions for a situation that I'm in that have not walked in the same shoes that I've walked in. So if I have like, so, you know, going back to like, as a child going through, you know, going through the uh, court system, like I'm looking at this judge, white haired judge who probably grew up in the right family and the right, went to the right schools and married the right lady and has this this crazy family has no idea the trauma that I've gone through. And yet he's trying to make a decision based, you know, he's like, well, here's the decision I'm making. And yet he never walked it out. You know, you know, so that's well, yeah. wouldn't even know how to walk it out. Right. right. Like, I, I mean, I would just challenge, like, how do you even get that job if you haven't slept in the streets? Right. And they, and it's a lot of people in authority. Right. I'm like, I'm looking at them. I'm like, I'm looking at you and you had this perfect life and I didn't. And you think, you know, the best for me, even, you know, it, it would, it, it's still an issue even today. So like when I have to go into an organization and do something and they're making a decision, I'm looking at them going, you, you don't have any idea what you're deciding and who you're deciding it for. And, and it's, I know it's a lot at this age, it's a lot more about me than probably that situation, but it's just still something I struggle with. And I know it's from, you know, growing up in that environment. Yeah. Well, I get, 
you know, I work in a lot of human service organizations still today as an adult. And so I see it all the time, right? Whether it's a homeless coalition or I'm with child welfare offices quite frequently. And I just hear the things they say. And and that's what they thought when I was a kid. And it ain't changed in 30 years, right? right? Like we're having the same conversations 30 years later. That's where I get frustrated is when are we going to say we screwed up? Like it's okay to screw up. But we have to admit we screwed up and then do the work differently. And for me, that's the frustration point. You know, so we're talking about police brutality, right? On on a national level right now and racial profiling on a national level. This is not a new topic. No, it is Right? So, I I mean, I see this all the time and and I'm happy to talk about white supremacy and my white skin and, and the privilege that I had and and the many times I survived this system because I was white. I will be forthright in it. We can talk about it all we want. I am very comfortable talking about it. And in the same token, I grew up in an era of listening to like NWA, right? Mm -hmm. And talking about police protect, like in seeing that in my own communities, that conversation hasn't changed, right? right? I mean, I can tell you where I was during the LA riots and the Rodney King decision happening. I know, right? Like I know why it happened and where I was. So acting like this is somehow a new conversation, even for folks of my generation, it's not a new conversation. It's just, we really don't want to have the conversation, right? right? And then when the headline changes, we'll be on to the next thing. Right. And that's what frustrates me is that these aren't new conversations. Kids have been living with trauma and that's been playing out. If you want to talk about the opioid crisis, then we have to talk about why people use drugs in the first place. That's right. And, and, and people don't, like there is no little child laying in bed saying, when I grow up, I want to be a meth addict. Right. That doesn't exist. You'll never convince me it exists. What happens is, is that drugs actually make us feel better than the way we currently feel. So can you imagine how crappy people feel that they want to take something that they know can kill them to get out of the pain they're currently in? That's the conversation we don't want to have, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's what I've talked about and said, yeah, we're spending all this money on trying to, to battle the drug. And yet that's not the issue. The issue is why is somebody wanting to take them in the first place? And how do we stop that? Because if we stop that, then obviously it impacts everything else down the road. Exactly. And then it's right. It's the number one reason why we remove children from moms in the first place. The moms are drug addicts. Hmm. It's the biggest reason we remove. Okay. So now you've removed, how has that fixed anything? Exactly. Mom's still using drugs because you've removed the kids and the kids now have new trauma. It, it fixes nothing, but yet we keep doing the same behavior thinking somehow there'll be some magic thing in the water. There's nothing magical in the water. Like we have to change the way in which we approach and do the work and stop thinking that everyone's so evil and doesn't deserve help and that everyone has is on an even playing field. They're right. not. We don't all have the same advantages in the world. That That is a fallacy. You, Some people can work as hard as they want and they will not make it out of poverty. That's just the truth. It is the truth. And so if we're going to keep living in this American dream fantasy, right, we're not going to solve these issues. And as I get a little more cynical in age, there's part of me thinking, I think some people don't want to solve the issue. I agree with that. The, the roadblock isn't that we can't solve it. We can. We have the science. We have the know-how. It's true. We 40 years ago, we didn't understand the long-term effects of trauma. We do now. So why don't we do the work differently? Because there's money to be made in doing the work this way, right? We have privatized foster care. We have privatized prisons. People make money off of every kid who gets taken away from a parent. There are people making money from that. And making money then after we take you away, because Thomas is both of I know, 50-50 chance we both end up in prison, right? Right. The roll of a dice. So not only did someone make money on us, taking us away from our parents, they'll make money on us when they incarcerate us. It's just, it's, yes. When I learned that that- have that conversation. Right. I can see this conversation going on for a long time. (laughs) 
a long time because we I think we just scratched the surface on the next thing and I and I know that we see a lot just listening to you we see a lot on the same we're seeing eye to eye a lot on on things and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've gone through what we've gone through that we've really as adults now get to turn around and we take a, a deeper look at it because we went through it and go why did this happen what was really going on and then find out like it took I I wasn't I was past 18. Yeah when I found out that my parents were getting paid for us to be there. I did not know this. And I think back on like, we only got this much money for clothes and we only got this much money for, we only got, we only ate this. And I'm thinking, but you had four kids. Like that was a pretty good chunk of change. You know, you and were- And by the way, it's more if we can get you diagnosed with something, right? right. Like if you show your, that Thomas is problematic or has a label on him, we can get even more money because it's a graduated system. So- we're incentivized to make you have even more labels and more problems. It's and see, I didn't know that. And now I do. And so here you are, we're eating, you know, pinto beans and peanut butter and jelly, and we're not going out to eat, but then you go on a two week cruise, like something's not adding up here. Right. So it's just, it's, but it took me as an adult to start figuring all of these things out. So, but anyway, we were really like, we're really tapping into some really good stuff. So, so talk to us. Like, so you were, so you, you're an author. I am. That's you've, true. You've written a book. How many books? So I wrote an ebook. That was sort of my first four way into writing. That's on book Boone about setting goals and visions. Cause I think when a lot of people like us are trying to heal, we sort of stop at the self-help section of the bookstore. Right. And so that's where I stopped. And then I wrote my first book which probably most of my foster kids get, garbage bag suitcase, right? So this became my memoir that I was encouraged to write because of a lot of the clients I was working for at, at this criminal defense office that I was a director at. And then that book led me into doing a lot of coaching and consulting with individuals and then ultimately with organizations and systems who who wanted to really understand trauma and change the way in which they did the work. And hopefully by the end of this year, I'll have my next book out, which is called Hiking for Stillness, which is really about the process that I went through myself to, to heal. I think, you know, I don't think I'm that special. So I figure if something worked for me, it'll probably work for someone else. Right? Right. It won't work for everybody, but we all have to find our path. But that's sort of my hope. I get a lot of questions about, great, we get that you went through a healing process, but but what did you actually do? And, and so I had kind of a formulatic way that I went through it and kept notes and journaled through that. And so super excited to share some of the pieces I had to unravel in my own healing. Is there, a, is there an estimated <clears throat> date on when you trying to get that out? Yeah, well, the estimated date used to be 2020. And then this whole thing called COVID happened. And so I just like gave up and said, maybe nobody needs this. There's this whole other thing happening now. I've sort of revived it, thinking about it, putting a fresh lens on it. COVID's giving me a fresh lens. So I'm hoping to have it out by the end of this year, end of 2021. So hopefully fall or winter of 2021, we'll have the new book out. All right. So we'll, we'll definitely put those links in the podcast for the book, current book. And then if you want to do the ebook as well, we can do that in the podcast and uh, the, the listeners can have access to that. And so today where you are working with the multiple different organizations, I mean, obviously going through it yourself and and having a heart to do that. But you started out in the law is a in the law offices. Yeah. And not a lawyer, but just law offices. And then you married a lawyer. I married a lawyer, yeah. One that you hired. One that I hired (laughs) and fired. I've been through the gamut together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's what really got you going forward into changing and going through the life coaching process with it was because of the clients that you you guys were getting yeah i mean you know walk into a criminal defense attorney's office it's a lot of people in pain right Right. and again we can focus on their behaviors Mm -hmm. some of which i don't like right just like i don't like that they did those things and there'll be a punishment like the system will give them a punishment but if if that's all the system's gonna do then how do we help them heal and, and that's what we, my husband and I had been frustrated with. And so we thought this idea of how could we coach our clients to sort of do things differently and that healing path and listening to their stories deeply, not just about their crime, but listening to their story 
really was an eye opener of why I decided to share my story, you know, so I had kept my story a secret for, for almost 24 years, including from my husband, because there was just a lot of pain attached. I didn't want to own that story. I didn't want to be that story. I didn't want to be that person. And so I was trying to run from that story. And then this idea of saying, I've got to tell this story because it's actually a disservice not to tell it it because so many of my clients cannot tell their story. They're not in a place of healing. They're not in a place of power to tell their story. How can I tell my story to get people to think we got to change the system? And for me, that's the whole purpose of sharing my story. It's the whole purpose of coming on these podcasts is how are we going to change it moving forward, right? It's my big gripe with any newscast. They're great at telling you the problem. How are we going to fix it? I want people to give me answers, not tell me. I I see the problems are clear as a day, but what are we going to do to change it? And and that's really my goal uh, with the first book. That's my memoir. I spend the second half talking about those, you know, ideas then. And with this new book, it's how can we heal? I just realized the more we have healed people, the more chance of success we have in not re-traumatizing future generations. And in our generation and the generations behind us have a lot of work to do to heal. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I agree. And that's, so it's individuals like you that are just going after it. Like I, you know, even though we're still in our own journey and we're still going through the, you know, some level of a healing process and some level of trying to work through some things, because I feel like that's going to be a lifelong thing. We're, we're also compelled to change the status quo, to make changes in places that are, will positively affect those that are coming behind us. Right. And it's like, I always uh, tell this little, just use this little model of like, you know, when we are born and this is where we are. And then these are all the battles, regardless of what our journey is. There's always these battles we have to go through. And then once we, our, our children and the next generation comes along, they should actually be starting at our ceiling and yeah. not have to go through those same battles and continue to keep growing, right? Or at least a little below our ceiling, right? right? Like Right. But, but to start where we are or to start yeah. behind where we were, like that's uh-huh. just an injustice. And, and I think that's where, like for me, that's where my, my heart is. It's like, I don't want, you know, I want the, the foster children that are coming through. I want better for them. I want them to come out with a better head start than where I was. And if they do that, and then some of them get the, you know, the same passion to go, well, I'm, we're going to can still elicit change. And then the next group starts a little further ahead. You know, we're, we're making a difference. That's, that's the goal. You know, I always say in my lifetime, like if I, in my lifetime, if I can just convince people that removals will not solve it, I'll feel like I've done something beneficial. I don't even need to see it come to fruition. I just need to convince the majority of people that we can't keep going in the same way. And it's just these little bits, right? It's the hope that sort of keeps me going is that if I don't take that call, if I don't answer that email, you know, can that be the one person who says they'll keep going? And and I hearken back to when I wrote the book, it's right. like, for me, it's not, I don't in my lifetime need to see the complete dismantleization and fixing it. I'd love to, but I, you know, I'm also realistic and, and know how long that, that stuff takes. So if I can see that change that we're the philosophy of how we're doing the work is changing, I'll feel like I've done something right. or I've been a part of something. And so for me, that's what that's, you know, I second guessed it, right? Because that's who I am, right? Like maybe this was a really bad idea. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a PhD. Who am I to talk about this stuff? And then I got a call from a social worker actually in in Ohio who said, I was going to stop being a social worker. And I have this really, because I have this really hard case and I I just didn't know what to do for this kid. And uh, I read your book and I realized that if I stop, I'll just be another person in this kid's life giving up on them. And so I don't know if I'll always be a social worker, but I will see this kid's case through. And for me, that was like, that, that was enough. Right. Like one kid having one person believe in them a little longer was like, that's enough for me. Right. And maybe it's not enough for others, but it's enough for me because I know how little some people haven't invested in me and how much that has meant to me later on, right? I've had people make offhanded comments to me that have positively impacted me and have literally saved my life going forward. 
And so I know that it doesn't have to be these big hurricane maneuvers that, that save people. It can be someone paying you a compliment at the right time, you hearing them with the right ears and the right frame of mind that can really shift your whole worldview. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think those connections. And I think that's a great, that's probably a great place to kind of wrap all of this up because we could really, I mean, there were so many different topics that we could have just ran with in itself. And I know um, just letting the, the, the listeners know that you will be back. We will talk more about these other specific things. And I'm sure as I get responses from the podcast, it may actually give us topics to, they want to hear what you have to say on those, but for sure. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do a and a with the audience, right? Yeah. Let's dive into some of these hard conversations because somebody has to take them on as well, right? So right. If not us, who? Who's going right. to take them on and, and let's just talk about it. And I think just getting the insight as the listeners are listening to this, because I know it's just going to be more than people who are in their overcomer journey that are listening to this. It's going to be um, people who grew up in the normal families that are going to hear this. And, and I hope to just understand more about people like you and I that grew up in this, the system or grew up with the trauma that we we're not all thinking the same. We don't all feel the same. We, we bring, we're bringing different things to each situation and maybe just the understanding that will allow some grace that some common ground can be met. Right. Exactly. And I'll challenge your, your audience members. I think we should challenge them. What is the phrase? Two things. How do we refer to ourselves, right? We got to coin a new phrase, I think. And like, even when I hear overcomers, I bring us back to that alumni conversation because it's like, gosh, I feel like I have so much more to overcome. Tom. I'm not going <laughs> to overcome anything yet. Right. So, so what do we coin the new phrase of that? There's got to be a new word. We have to like invent our own Google, right? Like, right. what's the word that describes that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The challenge for the listeners. Help us mm-hmm. coin the new phrase. There you go. There you go. So again, we will add, uh, if you'll send me those links, I'll put the links in the Absolutely. podcast and we will be able to uh, share that information with them. And of course, you'll be back on the podcast, I'm sure. And we will talk more about some other things that we, we just touched this, just scratch the surface on. And any, and for the listeners, if this podcast, this conversation really resonated with you and you would uh, like an opportunity to ask questions, to maybe give us some comments or even want to talk about this, there will be a link down below for you to click on and we would love to connect with you. And then of course, if you or you, somebody you know, that's an overcomer that has an amazing story, we would love to have to connect with them and potentially have them on the podcast as well. So thank you for joining us today, Shenandoah. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me and feel free to reach out on social media or any other ways. Happy to talk to folks. Right. So on social media, speaking of that, what are your platforms? Yeah, it's easiest to find me on either Twitter or Facebook. Those are obviously the big boys, but I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, I'm the only Shenandoah Shuffalo, so I'm, I'm pretty easy to track down. There, there you go. All right. And so you can find her on social media. And of course, the links will be below. And thank you again for joining us on the Thomas Life and Coffee podcast.